talking about Greek deities and Bronze Age gaming, it's important to remember that one of the drivers of tone in a D&D type game is old-timey metrics and imperial systems. So rather than following Demeter, they should probably follow the standard yard. Food for thought. Well, pop yourself a beer or a cold libation. Let me tell you how I wrote this little theme. I went and took a call from brother Jason, and he tells me that he has a little dream. He says he needs a backwards intro to begin his podcast, and I ask him what you got. He said I'll start up with some talking and some moody clips and popcorn fighting, fantasy explorations, and some groundless exploitation. Kickstarts that I'm watching and some blind unboxings, full month horror movie marathon. Sometimes I'll let the dogs come on, contest, and of course you know it's all about games. I said slow down, let's just start with the name. It's the Nerds RPG Variety. With the other, Jason. Welcome back to Nerds RPG Variety Cast. I'm your host, Jason. I hope everyone's Christmas went well. If you don't celebrate Christmas, I hope you enjoyed any time off you may have gotten because of it. Hope everybody got to see and talk to their families, enjoy some festive time together. This would normally be a content episode where we would do talk about different things and open new topics, and maybe I'd do a, the first episode of the actual play. That when I say episode, I mean them actually adventuring. But that's not going to happen today. That'll happen on Saturday because today is going to be a call-in episode. The last call-in episode of the year, I've got a whole bunch of calls from a whole bunch of people, including new callers. But before we go to the call-ins, I'm going to talk about two games that I've been in. One as a player and one as a GM. Some people would argue the GM is also a player. I know that's a contentious topic, but I got to play in a Cockfula game run by Carl Rodriguez, the gemologist presents. My son also played in that game. We've got a very, very sporadic game that we've been running. I'm not going to go into a lot of details because it's a published module. I don't want to ruin things. But to give you the really high overview, my son's character inherited a house in Innsmouth. We have been on some adventures together. We went out there to check it out. And, you know, we ended up having weird encounters with people in town, chasing something down in the swamps, and he found out disturbing things about his lineage. So that was the game. I, Joe Richter, I have to admit that I did roll very well a couple times when we were hunting something down in the moor, out in the swamps. I must said out in the moors. And... Those, those rolls definitely saved us from getting any damage aside from sanity damage. Um, but aside from that, it was a fun game. I appreciate Carl running it. I think when we pick that game back up next time, Carl's wife Amy is going to join that game. So that'll be fun. It, it's really sporadic because it kind of has to work around my son's work schedule. But it's a lot of fun playing with him. Speaking of playing with my son, I also ran a game of Ninja City. Ninja City is based on the Dungeon Crawl Classics engine. It's a game so it lets you simulate 80s ninja movies and cartoons and all that. Back in episode 196, I gave first impressions of that. And in episode 199, I had a great interview with the creator of Ninja City. Well, I've run it before. I'm going to run it again tonight. I'm recording this prior to that game. That game, if everybody shows up, knock on wood, 
We've got Carl Rodriguez, the Gemologist Presents, Joe Salvador, Raven Guy Games, Daniel Norton, Media Baron, the Bandits Keep Media Empire, and my son's going to play in the place of Joe Richter of Hindsightless, who unfortunately can't make it due to family obligations. So I will give you a play report after that game. But for you, it'll be mere seconds. Okay, it's the next night. I am pretty much sober now. I think the alcohol is worn out of my system. And I'm going to give you a quick recap of this Ninja City session. This recap really deserves like an hour. We, we should have probably recorded it. <laughs> it was a great session. Had great players. All the players I wanted to show up showed up, except for, of course, Joe Richter couldn't show up. It would have been better if he was there. But it was a great, great game. We created the characters at the beginning of the session. Probably should have created them prior to the session because that we wouldn't have had to rush at the very end. But everybody rolled their attributes. They rolled their backgrounds. Um, and they named their characters. So the the backgrounds and, and the names of the characters. Joe Salvador has Paper Tiger, who is a postal delivery man. The, all the characters are, you know, at a, col- at a high school and they're like college age. Daniel Norton has a fashion designer named Mi- Miho. And she has all your 80s stuff, big hair, big shoulder pads, all that kind of stuff. Carl Rodriguez has Coach K, also known as the Gray Shadow. He's a community sports coach. He, he did a very cool character. He incorporated things like hockey pucks as his throwing weapon. And then lastly, my son did Libra, who was a librarian in his day job. They rolled to see who their sensei was and their where their hideout is. The background I gave them was that they were part of the last good karate studio in the city. The city that they're in is really corrupt. Lots of crime, drug use. And it's set in the 80s, of course. So we have, quote-unquote, white flight, where the affluent have left the city. Lots of abandoned buildings, things like that. Um, and the their master, their karate master, was killed in some kind of crime or retribution thing. And one of his old friends showed up the funeral and took them under his wing to train them in the arts of ninjutsu so they could take back the city in their own way. And so we rolled on the table, and they rolled, for their sensei, they rolled a millionaire philanthropist. So we said, oh, well, that's Bruce Wayne, kind of like you see him in the live-action Titans show on HBO Max, or like Batman and the Outsiders. Batman doesn't show up, but Bruce Wayne basically is bankrolling and teaching them the arts of the ninja. And their hideout is in the basement of Dive Bar. They rolled Dive Bar for that, so that was pretty cool. And so they figured out their characters, which is good. And then I gave each of them a, a rumor that they could incorporate into the game, you know, whenever they wanted to. We played on Zoom, so we had we could see each other and talk to each other. And then everybody just rolled real dice, and they used scratch paper to keep track of their characters and all that. So we didn't use any kind of VTT, really. We just, you know, did a video call. But prior to the video call on Discord, I sent them each a rumor, and they could tell the other players the rumor when it came up naturally in the game, if they wanted to or they didn't have to. The rumors, you know, some had to do with, like, a a rival karate dojo, the Scarlet Tigers, who've had an influx of money. And there's rumors that the Black Belts and the Scarlet Tigers can 
do under the table jobs, you know, for money and they've got like a new tour bus and all this stuff. There, there was a rumor about a conspiracy radio show talking about how a, a Russian spy satellite had been shot down and that that was evidence that the U.S. Star Wars program was working. Of course, it's the 80s, so we have satellites that can shoot down other satellites. There was a rumor about a local PBS channel talking about how there's interference with the radio waves, and they think it's a scheme to get rid of public broadcast channels. There's a, another one about how homeless people squatting in abandoned buildings have been chased off lately and how the city's been cutting back on homeless shelters. So and, and all that tied together into the story. The I, I'm not going to go beat by beat because this show's already really long, and I'm recording this day after most of the shows recorded. But if, effectively, the plot here is the bad guy is named Terry Silver, and he's the head of Silver Aerospace, and he has a scheme where they're putting antennas on top of abandoned buildings. And these antennas are part of the Star Wars program. And then in this one abandoned building, Nakatomi Towers is the is like the main antenna. And he has a a um in his home, in the basement of his home, he has a secret command center where he can activate these antennas and, and they'll all shoot radio waves and microwave invisible rays to the main transceiver in Nakatomi Towers, and it'll shoot a beam up to their satellite, and that bounces off that satellite and can destroy other satellites. And he was going to use that to shoot down U.S. satellites and British satellites and Russian satellites and and, and use it to kind of, is a, is a terrorist kind of thing, either for his own means or to get people to buy his satellites from Silver Aerospace or whatever. But various evil means he was going to use this technology for. He had hired the Silver Tigers as muscle to try to chase homeless people away from these abandoned buildings. He was putting bad drugs out on the street to poison homeless people. He um, had, was buying council members, city council members. He had them on his payroll and using those city council members to keep the abandoned buildings from being demolished because his antennas were on top of them and also to have them cut back on the programs for the homeless, maybe with the idea of forcing the homeless to move to another city, something like that. So that's kind of the master plan here. And the characters figured this out because one of the characters, Paper Tiger's uncle Buddy, was a, a Vietnam vet. He was his favorite uncle. He taught him about Asia, and that's how he kind of got into martial arts, all the stuff. Well, Uncle Buddy got addicted to smack because this is the 80s. And Uncle Buddy's brother, Paper Tiger's father, caught him in the bathroom one day shooting up, and he threw him out of the house as a really strict rule, kind of like... You watch the classic movie, Last Boy Scout, where Bruce Willis throws the Wayne brother out of the house. Um, is it Damon Wayne in Last Boy Scout? I can't ever remember which one is in Last Boy Scout. I'll, I'll tell you what. You talk about a successful family in showbiz, the Wayne family. They made, they're still making great stuff. But, man, talk about a, a successful family. I hope that keeps going. I hope they have a dynasty. They have, they have a really great Tons of success, love all the, not all the projects they work on. Some of the stuff they do isn't totally great. <laughs> Little Man isn't isn't high art by any means. But a lot of the way, the way in stuff is really great stuff. And, and man, more power to them. That's great. The whole family's involved and it's good stuff. But anyway, The Last Boy Scout's a good example of 
where somebody's tossed out, you know, the house because they're doing drugs. Well, that's kind of what happened to Uncle Buddy. And Paper Tiger had heard that, you know, these bad drugs are on the streets. And he had thought he saw Uncle Buddy the, a week before. So he, he and the gang decided to go track Uncle Buddy down to see how he's doing. And as they're going to where they think he is, they kind of round the corner and they see the Scarlet Tigers out there beating up these homeless people. So they throw on their ninja masks and they, which in this world, once you throw your mask on, that is a good enough disguise. And they go, they kick the Scarlet Tigers' butts, interrogate them, find out they're being paid by their sensei to, you know, chase homeless people away from abandoned buildings. And they figure out, well, there's something going on with this building, right? So they, they, they take the money off all the Scarlet Tigers, give it to the homeless guys, give the Scarlet Tigers a quarter to catch the bus. You know, everybody clears out. And they investigate this abandoned building. Well, they find the radio antenna on top, and they check through the building, and they find the power in the building's out. But in the basement, there's like another power box just for that one antenna. So they set an amp, they, they disable that power box, they they crack the fuse. And one of the kit, in, in Ninja City, you get your roll for random ninja gear. And one of the things one of the characters had was a camo net. So they set an ambush up in this basement where they're all under the camo net. And a few hours later, some guys come to check on the fuse box, see why this antenna's out. And they ambush them and they fight them. And they have a pretty good fight because two of the guys are cyborg enhanced. They have like, you know, cybernetic arms and stuff. And, and they have machine guns. But they, they take them out, um, and so there's a lot of was a lot of cool moves in the fighting that I'm I'm really not covering because it's a a, a kind of high level um, summary of the game. But they, they did some cool things like during this fight with the with the cyborgs, one of them you, you know grabbed the, grabbed the gun and twisted it around so so the guy shot himself in the chest. Um, dur- during the other fight, there there's just a lot of neat things. The, these players all came up with great ideas. There was all kinds of great role-playing, all, all kinds of great improvised things that they did during these fights. And I just don't remember all the things they did, but it was really great. Which is kind of, I kind of wish we had recorded it so you could have heard all the cool things they did. But they captured the one technician after they took out the two cyborgs, and they interrogated him and found out these antennas all fed into the main antenna at Nakatomi Towers. So what do they do next? Well, they decide they need to get some evidence. So the librarian goes back to the library and he's checking in to see what council members are voting and who's doing what with the votes. They try to track the money down. The postal carrier gets a hold of the mail going to the Scarlet Tigers and he steams open an envelope and finds a check from silver aerospace going to the silver tigers you know and and they decide they need to go look for evidence and so they have two options they can either go to the headquarters of silver aerospace and try to break into the the corporate building or they can go back to terry silver's house when he's not there and try to ransack the house looking for evidence they decide to go to the house and what they do is the fashion designer mayho decides that you know she researches and, and sees that Terry Silver's wife is into fashion, you know, because during the 80s, what do you do? You, you buy fashion, you know, big, big shoulder pads, hundreds of shoes, all these kinds of things. So she, over the next couple of days, Mayhu sets up a, a private fashion show with the wife of Terry Silver. So they go to the house when he's not there. Uh, 
and the other characters are kind of the helpers, and, and they come in and out with the outfits, but that also gives them a chance to check the house out while Mayhu keeps the the wife busy. So they're investigating the house, open bedroom, don't find anything. They go to the office, and they're able to get in the computer due to a really great roll. My son rolls he is so lucky with dice. So he rolled a number of 20s in this game, which are you know critical successes. And when he's doing the computer hacking, he rolled a 20. Of course, he had to copy everything onto floppy disks. Luckily, there was a, a handy stash of floppy disks there at the computer he could copy data on. But he found like the names of the crooked council members and the checks going to the the silver tiger or scarlet tigers. And he found a lot of evidence, but not everything they needed. So they kept checking. Paper Tiger checked the basement and he found an entrance to the secret control room. And they go down there and they take pictures of that. But they realize it's dangerous. They need to get Nakatomi Towers to disable this thing. Because when they're in the control room, they can suss out that, you know, it has to do with satellites and it can, you know, for taking, shooting down satellites. Before they leave the house, they get up on the roof and they disable the the antenna on the roof, they unplug the coax, and they cut the phone line, which will hopefully disable the command room there in the basement until they can shut down the their Nakatomi Towers. I think that was Daniel Norton's idea, but the ideas were coming hot and heavy. All the characters had really great ideas. Oh, one of the other ideas, and I believe this was Carl's idea, was after they had found out that these antennas are in these abandoned buildings, they mobilized the homeless population to go to these abandoned buildings that they found these antennas, the power um, boxes in the basement to disable them. And they, you, you know, encourage that behavior in various ways, which we won't discuss in public. But you know, so there are lots of ideas, and, and, and I'm not going to say who came up with what idea for all the ideas, because everybody across the board had really great ideas, and I don't remember who came up with all of them. Um, but th- so they go to Nakatomi Towers, and it's still, of course, in kind of wreckage after the whole terrorist incident. But and there's a guard walking outside, so they have to get past the guard. So Daniel's character Mayhu decides that she'll pretend to be a a jumper, uh, commit suicide. And, and I said, "How are you can get in there?" And well, she had some gunpowder. One of the things she got was flash powder or gunpowder. It's one of her ninja kits. So she sets a distraction off. And while the guard checks a distraction, she climbs up the building, and Carl gave her his 50-foot rope. The Gray Shadow gave her a 50, this 50-foot rope. It's a regulation rope, of course, because it comes from the sports coach, and with the idea that you could swing and crash through a window later on if you need to, kind of like in Die Hard. So she's she's up there, and by the time the, and she starts screaming, so then the guard comes back, and she has the guard's full attention, and he's trying to talk her down and tell her not to jump, and the other characters can sneak in the building. And they get to the command center and they confront Terry Silver himself and they're getting ready to do this this showdown and I've given him really good stats. He's got like plus four to everything on a in a D twenty system. But I, I rolled like two fives in a row. You know, I rolled really horribly. And and my son came up with this great idea that he had gunpowder as well, flash powder as well. So he threw it in Terry Silver's eyes and I, I totally flubbed the saving throw for that. So so he's blinded. And at that point, Daniel had his character jump off the building and, and come through the window and just slam into Terry Silver and take him out. So they took him out. And um then each character got to narrate their little epilogue and how they, you know, help the homeless in different ways. The 
the sports coach kind of set up a you you know basketball league for the homeless and the librarian arranged to have the libraries open so they could hang out in libraries later on cold nights and they they came up with different different things but all, all in all it was it was a great game lots of fun and yeah I would highly recommend Ninja City it's only like five bucks you can get it on drive through RPG so and you you know has DCC. You really should have the DCC book for a couple of things at reference. But to be honest, you could buy this if you don't have DCC and use an OSR rule set, like one of the free OSR rule sets out there, and you'd be able to play this without a problem. So you could really buy Ninja City and then use most any kind of BX rule set and run it without a problem, I think. I know I didn't go in a lot of detail in the Call Cthulhu game, although... The visions of my son dissecting something in a, in a woodshed, cackling maniacally, that's priceless. I, but like I said, I don't want to spoil that adventure for anybody. Dungeon Crawl Classics Ninja City was a homemade adventure, so no problem talking about that. I want to plug one last thing before we go to the calls, and that's Castle Entertainment. They do first edition modules, or Osric modules, but some really neat modules. But what I want to point you to is a link in the show notes to his YouTube channel where he has done a number of interviews with luminaries of the game like Jim Ward and Darlene. You don't see a whole lot of interviews with Darlene, so I thought I would point that out. You guys can go check that out if you like the early days of our hobby or interested in hearing some of the people involved from the very beginning and some of the very influential people talk, then I would go check that out. Pretty neat interview series. Okay. Like I say, I've got a bunch of calls, so let's get into it. Who's on the phone? Who's on the phone? Who's on the phone? Who's on the phone? Well, maybe it's your auntie or a joke put by your spouse, but the operator's scream is coming from inside the house. Hey, Jason, this is Menion, also known as Rob. So with regard to the, uh, the talk about uh, doppelganger, I think that's pretty much the same thing. So, you know, you ultimately you don't want to sort of have some kind of like insta-kill, do you? You don't want something that's sort of waiting there to take out the, the party without them being able to respond or react or prepare in any way. So these things like uh, um, really lethal traps and and, and doppelgangers, um, slithering trackers is another one, perhaps, perhaps rock grubs and ear seekers. I think you have to be really careful about how you use those. Um, I think... I wouldn't want to take them out and I wouldn't want to uh, nerf them. But at the same time, I, I would want to use them in such a way that puts people on their toes, keeps people on their toes, um, and, uh, well, you know, give them a f- few op- opportunities to react before um, it can turn nasty. You know, ultimately, I guess I want those things there. I want the, a certain tension to be in the air of a dungeon or some other dangerous place. Um, but I, I don't want to spring gotcha gotcha monsters on on people all the time i don't want traps to uh be wipe out the party i don't want uh, rooms full of screen slime uh, where a 10th level 
party member can fall in there and aut- automatically, you know, turn into green slime, die within a couple of rounds. Um, it's, it's just not fun. But I think the dangerous monsters and traps are really important and to put them there and to to foreshadow and, and remind them that if they don't make the right choices, if they don't um, respond correctly, if they don't uh, avoid trouble, then they can die in, uh, within mm. moments. So, um, yeah, it's a tricky one. Minion, also known as Rob, has Confessions of Wee Timmer Spooshy podcast. I'm here recording at the last minute trying to get this out. I'm Tuesday night after work, tired. But in honor of Minion, I have a drink in front of me, a highball, which I know he approves of. So we're, we're going to attempt this. I, I'm going to do a series, I think. I think the OD&D oddities is going to slowly turn into the Gotcha Monster series because there's so many Gotcha Monsters in AD&D and, and in TSR D&D. It's, it's just nuts. You mentioned a couple of them, like earwigs. You know, you have to listen to doors, but to listen to doors, you have to take your helmet off and then you have a chance that these things are going to hop in your ear and, you, you know, you have to, if you don't react right away, you're done. Like rock grubs, right? So we'll talk about that. Rock grubs, I think there's a better... You can do more tells than earwigs. Earwigs are kind of a tough one. It's like cloakers or mimics. But I'll do a series on those. But I think the key there, and and this has been said multiple times in multiple podcasts, but is definitely to give tells. You definitely want to telegraph these things out there. You don't want to just pop it on the players. Of course, some of these monsters, as as we'll discuss when I do that series, are designed just to pop on your characters because they really only work the first time. Because after the first time, earwigs jump into somebody's ear when they listen at the door, well, you're going to have a hard time getting characters to listen to the door after that. (laughs) You know what I mean? So, But we'll talk about that. But I think Rob makes a great point, and I do think you should telegraph. In a lot of these creatures, you can easily telegraph. You know, slime on the floor, or bones, or statues in the case of a monster that you know has um petrification you know so statues that with scared looks on their faces there's a variety of things you can do and we'll discuss all that but but i do think that's a really good point and doppelgangers are kind of like that if only you want to have a rumor of that doppelgangers exist you should be giving rumors out to your players and if i think if you're going to include something like doppelgangers in the game there needs to be something, even if it's a comment overheard in the tavern, that doppelgangers exist in that world, so that way the players aren't totally blindsided. Mind you, even then, I don't know if they don't realize there's a doppelganger in the group. I don't know, just having it kill the party is is cool. I mean, I guess, you know, I, I'm not saying Carl said that was cool in a previous episode, but he did mention that you know, in the case of a doppelganger, maybe okay to kill characters in their sleep. So, I don't know. I guess doppelganger is kind of our gotcha creature, too. So, we'll talk about those in the future. But we'll hear more from Rob later on. Now, let's switch gears. We're going to stay on the same topic with doppelgangers, but we're going to switch to- callers and go to Joe Richter of Hindsightless. Yo, dude, let's talk about doppelgangers because I don't really know the henchman thing. So <laughs> I've never used a doppelganger to murder a character in their sleep, but I have replaced a character's younger sister with a doppelganger. It was a long plan 
the enemies had captured this character's younger sister. They knew the party was going to come and try and rescue her. So instead of having the sister in the cage, they had a doppelganger look like his sister in the cage. So after the party rescued, the sister brought her back, made sure she was safe. And her older brother was tucking her into bed, making sure she was safe. It was a very sweet very tender scene and then all of a sudden she sprung crazy claws and black eyes and started trying to murder him to death and it was awesome it was super super fun but i'd never killed him in his sleep joe that is an awesome story and an awesome idea and i love when i hear a dm get excited about murdering a character to death our next caller is daniel norton media baron recent player in ninja city and he also has some thoughts on doppelgangers and some useful advice on how to handle them. Hey, Jason. Daniel from Minutes keep calling in. I can't pronounce my own name. Uh, Merry Boxing Day. <laughs> I'll listen to your Christmas episode now. Um, so Carl makes a really good point about doppelgangers. And that's why, as a player, I always take doppelganger as a language. And then every time I meet a new person, I just speak to them in doppelganger and really stare at them and see if they react at all to it. And if they do, then I know they're a doppelganger, and I stab them with my two-handed sword repeatedly until they die. I'm pretty sure everyone that I've slain that way has been a doppelganger, but, you know, better to be safe than sorry. Daniel, that's a great idea. I hope all the listeners pay attention and put that advice into use in their games. I think greeting people in doppelganger and then stabbing them in the heart when they show comprehension is going to enhance so many campaigns out there. I look forward to the calls of people that try that in their games and the DMs whose players try that in their games. It's going to be great. And in fact, when we do this Gotcha Monster segment, I'm, I'm looking forward to asking you callers to or you listeners to call in. The highball's kicking in, folks. I'm going to ask you listeners to call in and tell me how you would handle these Gotcha Monsters. So that's going to be a great segment. I would call it incomprehensible death, but, you know, because a lot of these gotcha creatures really are an incomprehensible death, you know, all of a sudden the ceiling falls on you and consumes you. You reach into the treasure chest and it bites your hand off. But Grog Talk already has an incomprehensible death segment that is much better than what I just came up with. So I recommend, there's a link in the show notes, go listen to Grog Talk. It's a periodic segment where an accomplished GM comes on the show and they make up characters, and they, they kill the hosts in an incomprehensible way. It's a really great segment. But we'll, we'll do something similar on this show, but different enough that they won't be able to sue my pants off. Anyhow, let's move on to our next caller. And this next caller is Taylor of Cleric's Way Ringmail. You heard him at the top of the show, and now we're going to hear him again, and he's going to tell us a tale, not about doppelgangers, but remember... A few podcasts back, I had mentioned a player that was worried about getting hirelings and henchmen because he was worried about getting murdered in his sleep. And that's kind of what started all this talk. Well, we're actually going to hear from the GM of my current game here soon, the game where that player talked about that. The GM in my current game did not kill people with henchmen, but one of our other one of our, my fellow players in that game had a character killed that way or was worried about a character being killed that way. But the question is, was that, did that really happen, or was that a theoretical concern? Well, maybe that player played in a game with Taylor. I don't know. Let's listen and see. Merry Christmas, Jason. 
I'm calling in this morning from the elliptical to talk a little bit about killing characters in their sleep. There is precedent, of course. I believe the bad cleric from Temple of Elemental Evil or Village of Hamlet, uh, he will do that uh, according to the text. But it's something that I tend to... I really haven't experienced that much. I don't know if it's just the groups that I have have always set watches where there was a player character up for every watch or what, but hadn't happened much. That said, I have a buddy who actually I need to send a text message to. I'll send him a Merry Christmas text where he was notorious for it. As a DM, he would have the absolute least loyal henchman ever. They would kill you in your sleep. They would run off with your stuff at the first opportunity every single time. And I remember when I joined that gaming group, I noticed that nobody was making use of hirelings, and I wasn't sure why. And I brought it up at Waffle House at some point to, to talk about it, and the DM said, why would I, as a hired sword, you go down in the dungeon, if you left me with this wagon load of gold, why would I not just ride off with it? And my first thought was, dude, don't you work as a cashier? Humorously, he actually, now that I think about it, was the employee of the jewelry store that sold me my wedding band. So he is apparently more loyal in real life than his henchmen are when he runs a game. It's a escapist fantasy, I guess. That's what we're all in it for, right? Same person, whenever he was a player, was always secretly evil. It didn't matter what he started out playing. It turned into a secretly evil character who was not very subtle and it was not hard to figure out. But he would kind of rely on the other players pretending not to leverage meta knowledge to avoid getting their throat slit. And hence was the tradition of two player characters on watch every watch. Come to think of it, that group was the first group I played with who in all games didn't use henchmen. I couldn't for the life of them, or I could not for the life of me get them to use hirelings. But eh, perhaps uh, being the new guy, I had missed the multiple campaigns that kind of ruined it for them. Anyway, happy Christmas, Jason, and keep on gaming. So we finally found that the killer DM, henchmen killing PCs in the sleep, is not apocryphal. Now, whether the other the player in my current game had experienced that or just talked to somebody in Taylor's previous game, I don't know. But it's interesting to get a call from somebody where it really happened to. Now, the next caller is, this is a first-time caller, this is the GM in my current AD&D online game. And he's doing a great job. I'm really enjoying his game. It's been a lot of role play so far. We haven't even got out of town. We're basically still in the inn. We spent two sessions getting the party together and role playing, meeting each other. Lots of fun. So DMWM, great stuff. He's actually just started a podcast, The Worlds of MN Lewis. M.W. Lewis. Yeah, I am a little bit tipsy, but that's irrelevant because we're going to listen to his call. 
If you go to my show notes, there's a link to his podcast. But let me say for the record, my current DM has not killed any characters with henchmen. So I want to make that clear as he wants to make that clear in this call. Let's go to him. Hey, Jason. WM, the DM here. The guy running your Friday night 1E game in the world of Greyhawk. And I just want to make it very clear. But before I make it very clear, I want to thank you for your session descriptions on your podcast. I had never listened to your podcast before, and I started listening to them since you joined the game. And I'm really enjoying your podcasts overall and your session descriptions in particular. And one of the comments you made on your second description of our second session has really uh, caused quite a stir among your listeners. And I just want to be very clear, and I want you to make it very clear that I am not the dungeon master who had the henchmen murder uh, the, the party in their sleep. I have nothing to do with that. I was never planning to have that happen. It was, it was our player who hesitated at the idea of hiring henchmen and, in fact, is very afraid to hire a captain of a ship. And had admitted that he's never really experienced henchmen or he has a bad feeling about it, which which led me to even comment during the, the session out of game that I find it odd that a lot of modern players don't like to hire henchmen when it really is a part of the game. A, a, a large portion of the Dungeon Master's Guide is dedicated to this aspect of the game. And I hope the rest of the players will just overrule this one player's veto and go forward and hire retainers and henchmen. In fact, one of the other characters already brought into the game a henchman, which also caused me to out-of-game lecture that that really wasn't cool either, that you shouldn't hire henchmen as part of the player creation, which also harkens me to... uh, uh, Menion's comment that it's really fun to make the characters as a group, and I really wish we had done that. I wish we had all made our characters together as a group because I, I don't even like when people make their characters out of game and bring them into a game. I, I like the old style. You sit together, you roll the dice, you make your character, you start the game. So we, we have a lot of guys who are Dungeon Masters already, and they went through the Dungeon Master's Guide and used the age... Um, the age... Uh, adjustments to their ability scores and quite frankly i don't i don't use those when i play with people um i view that is in the dungeon master guide so it's optional it's not in the player's handbook and i normally don't even use that rule for the age adjustments but a lot of players already went into the dungeon master's guide and and did it and adjusted their characters uh, uh, accordingly and i would have just said don't do it i really think players should sit with their dungeon master and make their characters but I know that's just my opinion. I think I know there's a lot of people who just bring up bring characters to games, and that's another that's another way of playing. So, but back to the thing about the henchman, it is it is the one character I believe it's the magic user. The I'm not going to name the player, but the magic user character, his player is the one who's uh, very cautious about hiring the henchman. And it has nothing to do with our game. We were only in our second session of the, of the game. So thank you, Jason. Bye. Don't drink and record, folks. This is like the fifth time I've recorded this response to this call. This is a great call. Hit The link to his podcast is in the show notes. Go listen to it. I'm going to listen to it tomorrow morning on the way to work. So I haven't listened to it yet, but I have no doubt it'll be good. Um, I agree with everything he said in here. 
I think you need to make characters with your DM because you don't know what changes the DM has made to the world. He might not have gnomes in his world, and if you make gnomish as one of your characters, if you're a magic user, human magic user, and you pick gnomish as a language, and there are no gnomes in the world, now you have to go pick another language. Or if you're a, a hobbit, halfling, I'm sorry, if you're a halfling and, and you summered with gnomes hanging out in the garden, well, now you have to rewrite your backstory. So find out what's in the DM's world and work with the DM when you make your characters. I don't think that's revolutionary, and I don't think that, you know, is against anybody's thoughts. But it's a good reason to have Session Zero. I'll tell you another reason to have Session Zero and have the DM and all the players there when you make your characters. Is the characters come together better as a team. You have a much better chance of having a Falford and Grey Mouser team up where you make characters together and then they come up with a common connection and riff off each other. That just sounded like hiccup. It wasn't a real hiccup. But your characters will riff off each other. And and that makes so much better role-playing when two characters have a connection and, and riff off each other than if everybody comes to the player with a lone wolf. I'm Wolverine. I'm Drist. You know, whatever. And then the players are playing their own game instead of playing as a group. You know? And in this current AD&D game, we did a session zero. Now, some players went off, finished their characters, and bought hirelings and whatnot. But for the most part, we created our characters together. And when I rolled up and, and we you know, wanted to do a paladin, we asked everybody, and they agreed, yeah, we're okay with you playing a paladin, because I didn't want to force anybody to play a certain alignment. But when they agreed to it, you know, and it's great, because now I'm playing the short, fat paladins and having a, a blast doing it. So I'm really looking forward to the next session. Anyway, let's get on to the next call. But I really appreciate this call. And I'm def and I'll definitely give a session recap for the next game when I'm not drunk. Lucky for you guys, I'm sobering up. And now we're going to switch gears and go back to Daniel Norton. So I'm calling you to, uh, I guess, agree with Joe again. Hey, hey. Um, yeah, both that you're going through the the gods was super interesting. And also that right, some of the choices are like, Hmm, what? Um, and I think that uh, what you what the points you make are really really good, and also Monster Man is great. Um, but also, I whenever I was using that, I'm thinking back to before I knew all I know now, and I was using it as a kid. I always looked at the gods' alignment not so much as their alignment, but the alignment of their followers generally. So if you're going to have a follower, if you have a priest of Zeus or followers of Zeus, they'll likely be a chaotic good because that's what he is, and that's kind of how I used it. I'm not sure if it says in the book to use it that way, but that's kind of the way I used it. I mean, you did mention that clerics have to be the same alignment as their gods. So I guess that that means it's, it's at least somewhere. Maybe that's where I got it in my brain. But yeah, it's super interesting, though, to look at the different gods and try to categorize them. I mean, really, if gods don't care about people, which is the case in most cases, wouldn't they just be chaotic neutral? Daniel is speaking my language here. So that's how exactly how I interpret the deities in AD&D. Yes, they have an alignment, but you need to interpret that alignment through that god so all chaotic gods their followers are not going to be the exact same they're all chaotic good but they're not necessarily going to interpret the exact same way because you're going to interpret it through the lens of your particular deity you you know and a good example of this we talk about the greek mythology is nike and you know this goddess has a very stern way of looking at things and her clerics are not allowed to transgress against their alignments or sect even once if they do, they suffer death from a lightning bolt. 
large enough to destroy them totally. So most gods are not that unforgiving. Now, she's lawful neutral. Um, but definitely you would interpret your character's alignment through the lens of that god. So Dionysus, of you know, has this very special way that their clerics need to act. You, you know, you can't even cast spells, I don't think, as Dionysus unless you're inebriated, which is very apt in my case. But yeah, Daniel, I, I agree. You you have to interpret it through that deity. And that's another reason you really need to talk to your DM, because you and your DM need to agree on that interpretation, that alignment, and that interpretation of what that deity teaches. Because if you have one, th if you're a cleric of Zeus, and you have one thought of Zeus, like Joe Richter does, and I'm not saying he's wrong, because Zeus definitely did all those things that Joe Richter mentioned, you know, he tricks men, and he doesn't really, you, you know, mankind's doesn't matter a whole lot to him, and he, he, he goes and he shape changes, and sleeps with women and uses them. And yeah, Zeus does all that stuff. No question about it. So, but if the DM has one interpretation of Zeus and how Zeus thinks his followers should act and the player has a different one, well, you're going to have problems. So you need to be on the same sheet of music. And that requires that communication and not bringing a character made whole cloth to the campaign, but that back and forth and discussion which is really important for these old school games. And actually, I think that's really important for new school games as well. I don't think that that's old school or new school. I think that's just, if you're going to get into character, you have to both be on the same sheet of music so that GM can correctly interpret your actions as a player. So anyhow, let's move on to the next call. I like how you brought in the Cavalier idea. I know it's unearthed Arcana, so... Um, you know, apocrypha for some people for AD and D one, but uh, I did have. Remember those brothers who who killed e who killed each other in a Pendragon? They also played in a D and D game of mine, and one played a paladin, and the other played a cavalier. And yeah, there was definitely a contrast. The cavalier, half elf, haughty, demanding the paladin giving away all his stuff, even to the point that eventually he became more of a monk, uh, fighting with a fist and shield and light, you know, no armor, uh, giving away his armor to the church um, that he was a part of. I think he was a follower of Helm in the realm. So Helm Heimdall, I guess I made him the guardian of the bridge. But um, anyway, yeah, it was a very interesting contrast. So I agree with you. Wow, Carl, that's interesting. So, I, I'm not familiar with your game world, so I couldn't, you know, obviously I can't comment on that. But I don't see why a paladin would have to listen to what a cavalier told them to do. You, you can make arguments whether cavaliers should listen to the higher-ups in churches even or not, right? Because, look, like the Templar Knights, they, they kind of did their own thing. They, you know, they in theory, did what the Pope and, you know, Rome said, or, or the kings said, but they kind of were their own government, too. So if a random knight came up, I don't know that a Templar would really care at all what they said. But again, that's not necessarily the world you were running in the game you, that you're talking about. So, but, but I have a hard time envisioning the world where a knight comes up to a paladin and shames them into giving up their armor and weapons. But 
I, I'm not saying it couldn't happen either. I, I just, it's just not the one of the worlds I play in, right? But Carl has more to say. I mean, I, I agree with the you and Daniel. The classic way of playing was really, was giving up, uh, you know, a lot of gold fight, a lot of monsters. I mean, look at the GDQ classic, right? I mean, as I would say Tomb of Horrors is, well, it's more of a tournament convention game, but GDQ is like a whole a campaign and there's a lot of treasure and a lot of monsters in there. And um, yeah, I mean, or look, go look at Blackmore. I mean, come on, all those guys, they made some crazy, crazy gonzo um, stuff. And I, I don't know, I, I wonder, I've been trying, I try to introduce that into my um, uh, Broken Lands game. There's some crazy gonzo, weird technology stuff. And I don't know, hard to say if it was a uh, raw receiver or not because the game's not happening anymore. But uh, I think the players had fun at the time with the rails and, you know, strange gates and crystal magic. And maybe that's one time when I said, yeah, when I was running in high school and into college, we ran characters from first level all the way up to the high teens, and people didn't don't believe me. They say we I cheated or we cheated. But uh, no, we... we uh, had a lot of treasure and a lot of things happen and um that's kind of how you get to high levels in AD&D 1 and 2 so we played a whole lot <laughs> especially during high school you know that was our weekend so uh yeah we were losers but uh, anyway so uh I I like that I like that you know rethinking this idea of classic play because that's kind of that's to me is a fun way to play I mean you get to roll roll crazy treasure on treasure tables that uh, are pretty, sometimes pretty generous depending on the monster you fight and you'll get lots of gold. And that brings me to like something else. So um, I've been running or playing in this uh, Hyperborea game for almost three years. It'll be like three years in January uh, with running by Kevin Madison, Dungeon Musings. And he kind of showed like all this big loot table that we, um, we, one after defeating a more or less a demigod and see that's already crazy classic monty holly right and osr people would turn their noses up and we got such a treasure haul and people were pooing that poo-pooing that on the disc on his channel um because but that's classic style i mean and i look at the hyperborea the new third edition hyperborea treasure table it's like holy crap it's pretty damn generous um i can't wait to run hyperborea because this is kind of embodies a classic style uh, minus the elves and dwarves and orcs. I don't want to get into classic style versus OSR style because I don't. Th- I think they're just meaningless distinctions. I that's not true. I think there's a meaningful distinction, but I don't think those terms are are necessarily useful because there are plenty of OSR products that are Gonzo and give out kinds all kinds of crazy treasure. So I don't think saying all OSR OSR games are gritty is fair, but. I do think the earlier days of the hobby, there was more treasure, more crazy magic items, more gonzo elements, more mixture of science fantasy and science fiction and pure fantasy. Those be modern terms because back then it was all fantasy, right? So I I do think there's a distinction in there, but I don't know that classic and OSR are the best ways to define that. I don't know what the best ways to define it are. Um, there's a, 
you know, by the early '80s, definitely we had a a, a pushback against the Gonzoness with things like RuneQuest and Chivalry and Sorcery, and, and we had the the idea of what James Holloway over at Monster Man calls the pathetic aesthetic, the British way of gaming, which may not be fair to our friends across the pond, but the idea that you know crawling through the mud and muck and and kind of a comedic but serious game at the same time that kind of Monty Python idea and and the early you know Warhammer fantasy and, and that kind of ideal that what we see in like the Fiend Folio and, and things and the early um, White Dwarf magazine in those scenarios which are great I, I love the pathetic aesthetic but I also love early D&D and the Gonzo what you're calling classic style Carl and I'm not saying what you're saying is wrong. I, I just don't know what the right terms are to call these things. But, but given my preference, I like lots of treasure, lots of magic items, and weird traps and weird monsters and weird races. And I, I like that kind of weirder game. I'm not worried as much about the verisimilitude of the setting. But if my players are worried about that, then I'll try to include that. A, a, as you could tell from the Ninja City we game we played you know i tried to ground that in the 80s where we had you know homeless people you, you know addicted to smack and you had the wreckage of the nakatomi towers there you know you can't get more gritty and grounded than that okay i i better let you talk again before i dig myself deeper in the hole here that's a great question like i've done all of it and i think Unfortunately, like in the one I've come to, I've come to a couple, either point by, because um, everyone starts with the same number of points, or everyone rolls their array, whether it's 3d6 or 4d6, and we pick one array, and that's the array we use. A 4d6 drop the lowest, and you know that's the array we use. And I do this because I've had people in the past, people like, oh, that person didn't really roll that, or that person has way too much powerful stats compared to me, and that's why I do it, uh, which is unfortunate. It'd be great if we all kind of embraced the randomness and we all rolled our 3d6 or 4d6 drop the lowest, and uh, we're happy with it. Arrange in any order, depending on the game, of course. Carl, my friend, the fact I'm drinking could have worked it horribly against you in this response, but I'm pretty much sober now. I've the shots of JB and the highballs I've drank, JNB, I should say. Um, I I do like rare JNB, um, Justonian Brooks. I, I know it just hurt. Justorini and Brooks, blended scotch whiskey, mainly because it's very prominent in all the jallies that I watch. Jallo is an Italian um, shock thriller horror movie genre. Um, Jallo is also, of course, yellow in Italian. It's the color of the books, the the thriller books that those movies are based on. And that's maybe my favorite genre of movie is the Jolly. But we're, we're digressing here. The point is, I'm pretty much sober now, which isn't good for me sleeping tonight, but it's good for you and my response to this call. And what I want to say is, I find that very interesting because I was in a game a while back where... We were each rolling our own stats, 
and then one care one player was very unhappy with the stats they rolled. So the GM decided, probably wisely, I, I'll admit that you know what, this other player rolled a pretty good stat array, so everybody can use that stat array this player rolled, and we did that. But I even offered to play the bad stats that the one player rolled that they didn't want to play, but we ended up using the stat array that another player rolled, and it worked out okay, and that was a fun game while it lasted. I I much prefer random stats. I don't mind having horrible stats, to be honest with you. I roll like crap anyway. Joe Richter, I'm sure, will, will call in to say that I don't, but for the most part, I roll pretty horribly. Like last night in the Ninja City game when they confronted the big boss, Terry Silver, and, and you're trying to roll high on a D20, both both rolls I got to do for Terry Silver, the initiative roll and his agility saved to try to save from having the gunpowder thrown in his eyes, I rolled a five on a D20. So even with his plus four, he failed horribly. <laughs> um, because I roll horribly anyway, I just accept that if I bad stats, it's not a big deal. But, you know, not all players are like that, and I get that. I understand the use of stat array and point by, but I will always be a big defender of rolling randomly because, I, you know, I'm playing. I'm a social player. I am playing to hang out with other people and riff off other people and have fun. Now, is it is it fun if you can't do do anything? No, not really. And if you fail every roll, is that fun? No, not really. So there's a there there is some point to having minimum scores or doing like forty six drop the lowest things like that. But for the most part, I do prefer random generation. And if I have a couple bad scores, that doesn't ruin my enjoyment. But I know it does ruin some people's. And to be fair, we've talked about this on the show before and on other shows. In some game systems, it ruins the characters. In OD&D, I can play a character with low stats successfully. They won't get uh, XP bonus. They won't get 10% bonus or XP. But generally, I can play them successfully. Where in 5th edition, from what I understand, if I have low stats, you can't really... You're screwing your party if you play a character with low stats. That's what I've been told by people like Daniel Norton and Taylor Clerics or Ringmail. So I, other people may argue that, but I've heard that play come into a come to a game with a character that has like you know negative attribute bonuses and the majority of their stats and no positive attribute bonuses would would be a detriment to the party. Where in OD and D, it doesn't really matter. Which is one of the reasons I kind of like the older games, I think. But, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I I rebel against the idea of having a, a tribute array and, and the idea of having one person roll and everybody use those scores. And I, I it just feels wrong to me. But, obviously, if I'm playing a game people I like, I'm still going to play the game. But I'll never use that in a game I run. Because I, it just feels wrong. But you know what? Other people have called in about this topic. The idea of, of stat arrays and rolling randomly and what that means socially and and the repercussions of it. And the idea of how that reflects our views of, uh, of different people in, in real life 
and whether gaming and real life should intersect at all. And these are huge topics, but a couple people have kind of attempted to tackle them. So it's time for me to give up the mic and let somebody else speak on this topic. And then, yeah, as far as point by and you not liking that and those types of games, sorry, that's the way the Pathfinder game was, man. My apologies. Uh, Still is that way. But, you know, you said you like sticking with what you roll and playing that out. But at the same time, I heard you very recently on my show bemoaning the fact that you wanted to change characters, but you couldn't. How is that different? You you didn't like the character you were playing, but shouldn't you be stuck with what you get? Or should you have the right to play what you want to play? I don't know. I see there's a little bit of a little bit of a dilemma there, man. You know? Which one is it? Anyway, dude, have a merry, merry Christmas. I hope no no doppelgangers try and murder you to death. Peace out. Hey, Joe, thank you for that call. As far as you know, I have not been replaced by a doppelganger, although unless you do the Norton test, I don't know if you'll know for sure. Regarding switching out characters, I think if you hit, you've hit a logical lull in the story... You're back in town. The adventure's over. Then, if you want to switch characters, I think that be ought to be okay. Over on Joe's podcast, Hindsightless, he's been talking about how, in his current Pathfinder game, he's ready to retire, at least temporarily retire, his current character so he can play a different character. And he wants to do that when they're finished the current adventure path before they move on to the next stage in the adventure. And I don't see a problem with that. I'm happy to play a character with low stats, but it's and I don't think you need to have a character with high stats for that character to be interesting. But if you get bored with the character, and especially if it's a pre-gen where you don't have any buy-in to the character, then I think you ought to be able to switch it out. Now, I think you need to be a team player, so you need to play that character until you get to a logical point for them to step out of the adventure. But if you hit that point and you want to swap out because you're bored, why not? If you're switching characters every three or four sessions, yeah, that's a problem. But you shouldn't be stuck playing the same character for three years if you're not having fun with it. Because part of this is having fun. Let's go back to Joe because he has some more to say. Me again, dude. So, yeah, as far as point by goes, and does that say you're saying some people in the real world are better than other people? No, I don't think that analogy holds up. It doesn't cross the border between role-playing game and the real world. Uh, Rob's a super smart, intelligent dude. No dispersions on him. But I don't think that, yeah, I don't think that tracks. We are playing heroic archetypes in these games, man. If you look at the literature that this game is based around, you don't see a lot of characters running around with a bunch of threes in their stats if they were statted out. No, (laughs) we're playing archetypes. Uh, I've heard you, Jason, talk about the importance of playing archetypes. And, um, yeah, archetypes don't have a bunch of threes, man. (laughs) You know, we could play where you stat out yourself. I've done that before. That's always fun. Anyway, man, I might call again. Who knows? Peace out. So I played a game. I've got a game called Time Lords where you do stat yourself out. Is a time travel game. And you're supposed to stat yourself out and you get your other players to help you determine what your stats are and what i found is other players want to be nice to each other so you don't actually get very honest stats out of that everybody ends up a little more superhuman than they really are 
but it, it is an interesting idea. And the question of how to stat yourself out as an RPG character is always kind of a neat thing to to read and a process to go through. I'm not going to answer as far as Ferminian because he calls later in this episode, and I'm going to let him answer and, and speak his own mind so I don't misrepresent him as I'm apt to do sometimes. But before we hear Minion's opinion and Minion's response to this random generation versus point by... We're going to hear the opinion of another luminary, Daniel Norton of Bandit's Keep. Hey, that calling in in the middle of your response to Mignon, because I haven't done that in a while. Um, I don't know. I guess I'm somewhere in the middle of this. I like to roll random characters and pick my classes and stuff based on the randomness of it. I like rolling random spells. I like that kind of stuff. What I don't like random, as we've discovered through Cyberpunk, is I don't like random backgrounds in the sense that they're too specific. Like, I don't mind rolling a random background that says I'm a blacksmith, but I don't like rolling backgrounds that says, oh, I've had three lovers in the last two years, and I fought with two of them, and I'm not with them anymore, and now, you know, I don't, I have a strange relationship with my mother. Like, I just, that to me is actually is the opposite. It actually makes me not want to roleplay that character. I like to look at a set of stats and classes and then create in my mind a picture of the character I want to play and then play them. Because it's how Daniel would react if he had that exact same situation, which is the you know high strength or whatever, not how Daniel would react if he had estranged parents, I guess. I don't know. It's different for me. I'm also not a fan of Point Buy. Point Buy is actually my least favorite character generation as well. However, I do like in 5th edition and games like that where your stats mean everything, I do like Stat Array, which is, I think is different than Point Buy. Stat Array is designed to be exactly what Minion was saying. Basically, you pull the character off the shelf, they're all the same. But that's because stats are so important in the game, and balance is supposed to be important in the game. So that's the reason why the game is designed like that, and I think it plays better that way. Having been in 5e games where people have rolled incredibly well and then incredibly bad, I can see the difference that it makes because so much of what you do, whether it be roleplay, exploration, or combat, has to do with your stats. In an old-school game where it really doesn't affect that much, maybe your combat. I don't I don't mind. I would rather just roll. Uh, but in a 5e type game, I always go st- uh, stat array. Never ever do I do point by or rolling in 5e anymore. This is also compounded in games that are skill-based. Like, you know, I go back to Cyberpunk or something like Call of Cthulhu. If I don't know the game that well and I have all these points, I don't know where to put them, I might put them in the, quote, wrong place, right? So I think I'm building a character that does this, and then in the end, they can't. I remember I was playing a Call of Cthulhu game once, and the uh, the player wanted to play somebody who was a circus performer and had all these acrobatic skills. They put things in different areas, but they didn't think to put things in climb because they were just like, well, I'm an acrobat. Of course I can climb. But guess what? We got to a certain point in the adventure, and the keeper was like, well, roll climb to get up there. And he's like, I'm an acrobat. And they're like, well, well your climb is 20. And then they fell down and died or whatever. And to me, that's like stupid, right? You don't know the system, so point by becomes really difficult to do. Now, if you know the system, I guess, that, and you want a power build, that's different. But that's why I think stat array is good, and I'm not a fan of skill systems. But, you know, that's a whole other rant and a different story. In any case, uh, back to listening. And Daniel, that's why I'm a fan of Barbarians of Lemuria with the career system instead of skill system. So at that point, when he said, I'm a circus performer, or I'm an acrobatic, a tightrope walker, then he would have all the skills related to tightrope walking. You'd have balance, you'd have climbing, you'd have wearing tights, you know, all those kind of things. Where in a skill-based system, if you, like you say, if you miss putting points on one skill, you're screwed. Where with a career system, you, you're covered. 
So that that's one of the reasons I like the career system, and that may just be the lazy part of me, but I, I just find that to be the superior way to go. Also, my problem with skill systems are, and I know people have argued this back and forth, but typically to me, you don't get enough points to build yourself out as a realistic person. But it may be that I just overestimate my skills. But for people to say that, like Joe Richter, I would challenge you to say, how many points in a game would it take to build Goblin's Henchman? Goblin's Henchman is another podcaster, and he's a blogger, and he creates games like the Hexflyer Games. And to create Goblin's Henchman and to reflect his real-life experience, you would need a buttload of points that you normally wouldn't have when you create a character. So there you go. That's my reason point buy doesn't work and skills skill systems don't work is see Goblin's Henchman. But now to answer these questions, we have the man that started the whole controversy. Actually, I started the controversy riffing off of what this man said. This is Minion, also known as Rob from Confessions of We Tim Rasbushi, and he's going to elaborate on on his feelings of point buy versus random character generation. Yeah, as for the point buys and uh, customization for characters and that, I know a lot of people really enjoy that, and so hopefully it, I didn't come across as bashing their forms of uh, play or enjoyment. Um, that wasn't my intention. Just that I p- personally prefer to see a lot of randomness. Um, well, I, I'm aware that people perhaps see Point Boy and, and other th- ways of customizing character as being very egalitarian, uh, quite contrary to what I suggested. And how could I possibly uh, suggest that doing otherwise is in any way fair? But uh, I, I suppose what I'm getting at there is um, something else. Um, yeah, I don't know. Um, but I think there's something to, to be said about randomness and how it doesn't pick favourites. It doesn't stack the cards. So I think I really need to think about that much more carefully because I'm aware that some people might, uh, well, will soon draw, except uh, take except exception to what I'm saying. But um, for me, I, I don't like the idea of making everybody special and everybody balanced and uh, sharing the privilege um, because I don't think um, privilege is good anyway in the real world or not, not in the real world. And, uh, and I'd, yeah, I'd, I don't really have any place for it. I think um, um, having having characters being un, uh, unexpected, um, that, that people can't necessarily be as handsome as they'd wish they could be or they can't be as healthy or strong makes for some really interesting um, characters and, and situations as well. Finally, and I know this is kind of going on, right? But that's what I do. Um, somebody recently mentioned about how D&D is about empowering people. It's about empowering players, empowering people. Uh, is it? Is it really... I'm really not sure about that. Um, when you say it's about empowering, who is doing the empowering here? So if the rules are empowering people, then they're not really empowering anybody, right? Because it's already been, it's just a setup. Um, everybody is already special, and so nobody is special. If the GM is empowering them, um, well, they've not really had the opportunity to empower themselves. So again, that's not empowerment. Empowerment is when self, your, yourself, you're able to um, 
take some kind of action and then and change your situation. And that's that's empowerment. Well, the last one was supposed to be the last one, but it wasn't. So uh, I'd just like to say thank you, uh, Jason, for um, all your episodes. Thank you to everybody who's been kind enough to to um, talk to me on the show and elsewhere. Um, everybody you know involved in Jason's uh, podcast, and uh, hopefully we'll have a, a a good year to look forward to uh, in games and uh, socially, and with any luck and, and a bit of hard work on our side to part um the uh pandemic and these healthcare issues these these worries will slowly start to become uh, be more solvable so uh, all the best and uh, of health and, and uh, enjoyment to everybody take care minion thank you so much for those kind words really appreciated i share those hopes that next year is going to be a better year and I, I really don't have anything to add. I, I, I don't want to try to keep rehashing this. I, th- I think there's some different opinions. I think there's definitely value to to everybody's opinion. Um, as as before, I tend to side with Rob here, but or Minion, but you, you know that's definitely not saying other people are playing the wrong way. Okay, that's kind of heavy stuff. So let's end the show on a lighter note. Let's talk about some movies. Yo, dude, it's Christmas morning, and I just listened to your review of Bloodbeat, and that movie sounds absolutely bonkers. It's – I don't know if I'll ever watch it, but I, I loved hearing you talk about it, dude. It sounds fantastic. Uh, yeah, so th- thank you for sharing that, dude. Bloodbeat, man, nothing to do with the movie. <laughs> just about with drugs. I'm all into it. Merry Christmas. I hope you're having a nice day off, dude. And uh, yeah, I'll talk to you soon. Peace out. Yep. Thank you, Joe. Really appreciate that. And yeah, I hope you're having a good visit with your family down California. I I know you were looking forward to that. And we have one more call, one final call, which we're going to leave in the hands of the geomologist, even though he has a, yeah, I, I don't want to say he has the wrong opinion, but he, you know, he's slightly off base here with his comment on Christmas movies. Speaking of Christmas movies, last night when Amy and I got home from my mom's, uh, we started watching Die Hard because Die Hard is the quintessential Christmas movie. And uh, it was pretty cool to watch. So glad you were able to watch a weird Christmas movie too. I mean, I guess Die Hard is a little weird. I definitely forgot some parts of it. Um, But uh, I guess Bruce Willis at his cheekiest. Hmm. Cheekier than Hudson Hawk? I don't know. Is Die Hard the quintessential Christmas movie? I, I think pop culture, American public, it probably is. Is it the one that, that we all pop in, though? Do people pick Die Hard over, say, The Last Boy Scout, if you want to stick with the Bruce Willis vibe? Or do we want to go with Lethal Weapon? Of course, you can go with any of... Shane Black's movies because they're all set at Christmas. I, I think as far as action movies and Christmas goes, you know, discounting the the ones I talked about over on Taylor's Christmas movie special, I, I think I would probably go with Cobra just because it has the nice music video photo shoot there in the middle of Cobra and, and, and you got the crazy cult in there. So that's pretty fun. And, and you have to admit that 
was a 50 or 51 Mercury that Stallone drives in Cobra is, is a pretty awesome car. So, but now I'm, I'm just pulling your leg, Carl. Die Hard definitely has earned its place among the annuals of Christmas movies. And I very much appreciate the call. So, th- in fact, I appreciate all the callers. Thank you so much for all my callers. Thank you to the you folks who have listened. Really appreciate your tuning in, taking time out of your day to listen to me. I want to thank Ray Otis for the Coffee Cup Clip Art, TJ Drennan for the wonderful music. If you want to take part in the show, you can send a message on Anchor. You can email to nerdsrpgvarietycast at gmail.com. Attach a sound clip to it. I can play it on the air and make you famous. You can also reach out to me on Discord. So there's a lot of ways to find me. But if you just want to listen, that's okay, too. I hope everybody's 2021 wasn't too horrible and look forward to having a better 2022. So I will talk to you guys again next year. Take care. Who's on the phone? Joking about your spouse, but the operator's screaming it's coming from inside the house. What's in the box? What's in the box? What's in the box? What's in the box? Well, the audience is pretty sure he took a pretty head, and the only question left is if I could shoot him dead. Bring on the gold, bring on the gold. I want some more, bring on the gold. There is a dustman in your moil's by the tipper And I'm assuming that your partner back there in the wood chipper Don't look away Don't look away Don't look away Don't look away Well the zombies are rising and the world is gone to hell We're living for the dying and we're dying for the train